0: Hey, good morning. How are you? You know, I, I, you just keep going. Just That's fine. I don't mind. No, it's good. It's good. See, now you're going to stop. So that was good. So I'm curious, how many of you answered the question Mike threw out at you about your plans for the fall? Let me see your hands if you answered that question. Let me see, if, let me see your hand if you think, and online you can answer this. I don't know if you're in the chat or not, but, or you could just wonder if you asked among your family, whoever you're watching with. How many of you thought, I don't need help having a conversation with somebody. I can have my own conversation. How many of you thought that? Let your hands. Yeah, very good, very good. So some of you are rule followers, and some of you are, are not. And, uh, and everywhere in between, this will come into play a bit later, I'm sure. Uh, it certainly wasn't on purpose. We're, we're going to wrap up this series today, one verse. Since the beginning of the summer, our hope and our goal was to point you towards some verses that you could sort of you know, calibrate into your thinking and into your heart, maybe give you a bit of a true north when it comes to how you operate, what your relationships are like. And so as we wrap up this series, what we thought we would do is point you to a scripture that's about scripture, and uh, that will give us some framework about how to even process some of the things that we've studied. If you didn't know, we've had a card for each of these series. There's about 10, 10 of them, I think, total maybe, and they are actually organized for you by date. And they're on the the little welcome counter out there. You could go pick one up if you like. You can trade them after service if you want. Um, Josh's picture is not on any one of these. And so that is the heartbreak of the day. Um, But you may find a verse that you would decide, this is going to help me. This is what I need to be reminded of. Uh, I I forget so much to do this one thing. And this verse kind of is an anchor for me. It could be that we've talked about one that's like that, or maybe you just want to pick up a stack of cards and see which one uh, hits you where you live the most. So a scripture about scripture, uh, at least to some degree, is 2 Timothy 3.16, and it starts like this. Let's say it together, all of us together. You ready? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. It's a great beginning to a verse, and it gives us a bit of a compass, and it first glance, it feels like this is just pretty straightforward and pretty simple. But like most scriptures, that's a first glance. When you take a closer look, it gets a little more complex than that. This word scripture is actually all all that is written. It's interesting. You have to wonder that when Paul, who's the apostle Paul, wrote a good bunch of the New Testament, when he wrote this to Timothy, who was a young pastor, uh, that's where it comes from, Second Timothy. He wrote a letter to young Timothy. As, as he was writing it, if he thought this is also something that is written, does it include the next sentence? Because it wasn't written yet. Does it include the sentence he was writing? I don't know. The scripture, the Greek word is graphe. It means anything that is written. And this is the beginning of the complexity. To add to it, this, this idea of something being God-breathed, well... If you study this verse or look at it, even if you do your own little, you know, sort of cursory study of it, you decide to read various translations of this verse on Bible Gateway or your Bible app, you'll see that translators sort of found themselves in the woods with this verse because each translation is pretty different from the others. And so this word, God breathed, some translations say inspired, inspired, or inspired by God or written by God, they're stuck because this word, well, it's only in this one verse in the entire New Testament. And it's a tough one to figure out. What does it mean? Did God take Paul's hand and and his little quill and, and move it? You know, was he completely kind of in automatic mode? Or did God whisper through the Holy Spirit an idea? And Paul wrote his own idea out in his own words or somewhere in between. It's a little complex. The nature of this verse is only as complex, however, as your own relationship with the Bible. And so to help you and I get from point A to point B today, here's what I'd like for you to do. I'd like for you to wrestle a little bit with this question. What is your relationship with Scripture like? What is it like? Now, you, you may not ponder or even consider that you have a relationship with an inanimate object, although the Bible is alive, but you do. In fact, you have relationship with all kinds of inanimate objects. You have a relationship with your car. You have a relationship with food. You have a relationship with all kinds of things, and you, in fact, have a relationship with the Bible. And I want you to ponder and reflect on what that relationship is like. How do you see it? Where did it come from? When did your relationship with Scripture begin? For some of you, it began later in life because faith wasn't a thing in your family. Maybe you never saw your parents read the Bible. Maybe it wasn't given to you when you were young. Some of you have more Bibles than anything in your house, and you have one that was given to you when you were christened, and then when you were baptized later, or dedicated, or at church camp, or for your 16th birthday, or when you graduated, and they're all written in, and... Some of you have one Bible. Some of you have a bunch. Some of you learned the Bible from a teacher that you grew up in church with or a youth pastor or a grandparent. And they had a view of the Bible. And so that probably became at least initially the foundation for your view of Scripture. What is it? Now, of course, over time, it's evolved for you. I mean, like anything evolves, so does your understanding of Scripture, and it moves in a certain direction. And so the Bible has either become closer to you, or more important, or more dear, maybe more distant from you. I mean, we're not going to ask you to share it so you get to be honest with yourself about this question. What's your relationship with Scripture like? How do you see it? How does it work? What do you think's in here? And why is it there? You could answer some very practical questions to help you get started even. Is it something you engage with or something you let somebody else explain to you? Is it something you enjoy reading or something that just is frustrating and confusing to you? And my guess is, is that maybe some of these bullets might help you Find your way when you ponder this question, your relationship with scripture well, some of you would say, "You know what to me, it seems like a rule book, and if somebody put you in a room with the Bible alone and you skip Genesis and you start with Exodus, maybe you would come to the conclusion that the Bible is just a bunch of rules, and it, you could find that evidenced in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Writings of Moses, writings of Paul, you could find it in all kinds of places. You might even find it in the red letters, words of Jesus, if you had this paradigm that it is a bunch of rules, and you could absolutely convince yourself that that is the truth. For some of you, it could be just a confusing collection of stories. If the Bible were played out in front of you on a screen, then Old Testament, New Testament, there's much of it that would not be suitable for family viewing, And you know this, and you've read the stories, and most preachers avoid those stories, you know, because they're confusing, and, uh, you know, do you really want to talk about that on a Sunday when we're about to go to lunch, and all those kinds of things. And so it's confusing. You read it, and you think, I don't even know what to do with that. God sends his people into a, a locale filled with foreigners, and they kill them all. How do you make sense of that? And if you didn't know that was in the Bible, I just ruined your faith for you. Or, you've read it, boxed it up, didn't know what to do with it, and set it aside. And decided, you know what, the Bible is just, honestly, whenever I open it, I just get confused. I don't know how old I was, probably middle school, when I heard a pastor say that the Bible is an owner's manual. It's an analogy that some people use. He said, he said, if you're confused about how it works, if you're confused about... How things are going in your life, you should read the directions. And he held up a Bible and kind of pointed it at me like this, like preachers love to do. They like, uh, you know, softbacks, so it flops when they do that. I'm not sure why. Hardbacks don't do that. I don't know. So he said, if you're confused about how your life is going and how it's working, you should read the directions. The Bible is like an owner's manual. And immediately I thought, that sounds like the most boring book in all of the world. When's the last time you opened up an owner's manual just to go back and read it? And even worse for me, whenever my mom gave me something to put together or a new thing, a new toy or whatever, I opened the box, took the owner's manual and tossed it aside. Didn't matter what it was. I didn't want to know, I wanted to discover. And that created some problems. You know, something might get glued together that's never supposed to be glued together and you can't get it apart. But it also might mean that you find out something that they didn't even think of with this little contraption and it's incredible. I didn't want to read the owner's manual. Never once have I opened up an owner's manual, sat down you know, by the fire and thought, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> I can't wait to be inspired. But maybe you've been told. It's like a set of directions to follow. It could be that you believe like that, that it's a guide to a successful life and you have believed the idea that if you can follow the instructions in here... Or principles, we don't have to keep it dry, let's spice it up a little. Or if you follow the way that the Bible describes engaging in life and living for God, that your life will then find a path of success. Why would God want anything different for you? If you go down that path, you can understand why health and wealth, preachers and churches, Grow like bananas and their books sell by the millions because it makes sense. Why wouldn't you want a life that is working out? It could be that you've been on the receiving end of scripture being a hurtful weapon, that you were in a place and somebody opened up scripture and they used it to incriminate, to indict, to shame. And my guess is, either in your life or somebody's life that you know, Scripture's been used in that exact way. And probably one of, the, one of the hardest things to overcome is that at some point, either your confusion, you're not sure, your frustration, any of these things, you have just decided that the Bible is an ancient, irrelevant book. Now, here's why all of these matter. My guess is, is you identify with one or two, maybe a few others of these, and you could even add some bullets. And I'm not even beginning to suggest, even though I was pretty negative about the owner's manual thing, but that could be something that works for you, you know, because you're a rule follower and a black and white thinker, and you want to know how the thing is put together and how it works and tell me how the steps should be that I take. Could be that that's your deal. So, I'm not suggesting any of these are necessarily, except for this one maybe, the hurtful weapon, um, something that should be tossed out. But you could add bullets to it. But I've asked you to reflect on a question. And the question is what's your relationship with Scripture like? And so, as you ponder that, maybe rework one of these into what yours is, or a completely new one that I didn't list. It matters so much. From your answer to this question flows your understanding of who God is, how he operates, why you're here, how you move forward, what you can expect when you open this, what you can expect in your relationship with God. And if you're anything like me or most everyone I know, this for you has changed over time. Maybe even your understanding of what this says and and what it's really about, what the story is there for. Or maybe move from one of these to another one or maybe another healthier one or more effective one for you. What is your relationship with Scripture like? I can think of no more significant question that would be worth your time to ponder this week than that one. Because it really determines whether or not you have just decided you're going to put this over here and not pay attention to it. And, and it could be that you've taken one of our cars and said, well, I mean, I, I haven't read any of Romans, but that one's pretty good. I think I'll give that one a try. It could be that you have touched your toe in the water of Scripture and you started in Genesis and gave up in the second chapter. It could be that you, along with our Bible reading group on the Bible app, have, you know, kind of dug in and decided you are in. You know this is good and then the effort and the confusion have just left you stale and wondering why anybody would use it as a book for life. It helps you frame your understanding of who God is and what you can expect and count on him for. So what is your relationship with Scripture like? It's worth your time to ponder it. So every now and then, I'll get a phone call or an email And uh, it's usually somebody that doesn't come to our church and they've got a question about our church because they have found themselves in the process of church shopping. It's kind of a strange term. Some of you have been church shopping in your life and I certainly have done a little church shopping in my. as if we're going to walk up and swipe it, you know, and buy that. That's the one. I like it. I'll take it. So we church shop and we have some criteria for our church. We want to understand where we're going. We had a problem with the other one. Now we want to figure out this one. And either you've been there or you know somebody is there. And they asked me this question. And this question is a very good question. And I like the question. This question is this. Does your church teach the Bible? That's what they ask. Now, when I was young in ministry, this question made me very nervous because I thought this is going to be a hard conversation. They're going to ask me particular questions, and I may not have the answers. And you know, I'm kind of new at this. And now, as a you know, old pastor, um, if you're older than me, then that's just sorry about that. It's just how it is. Um, I love this question because I know the conversation that proceeds from it is going to be pretty fun. So they ask. Does your church teach the Bible? I don't, I don't answer this over email. I don't even answer it over the phone. We sit down and we chat about it. And, um, and, I, and I want to take very serious uh, this conversation. Usually when we sit down, and they say, well, that's what I want to know. Does your church teach the Bible? And my initial thought is, as opposed to what? The, I don't know, some other book? You know, the Quran or something? I don't know. What, what, what do you mean? And, and so here's what I know that is an untold part of the story it might come out later, it might not. Whoever this was, he or she was at a church, and while they were at that church, somebody taught something that they disagreed with in Scripture on a subject that they're very passionate about, and they didn't like it. They went and told the pastor, and they had words, and you know, there was a moment, and, or maybe they just didn't like what they heard and decided, I've heard that six times now, I know it's true, and then they decided, we can't go to church here because we see this differently. And I don't know what that subject is. And odds are in the first six conversations, I'll never find out. They don't want to tip their hand afraid I'll just agree to get their tithe, which I would never do, by the way. (laughs) And so they say, does your church teach the Bible? And I'll say, what do you mean by that? Do we teach the Bible? We do, we teach the Bible, but what do you mean by your question? And then they usually say something like this. Well, I know that when I read scripture, It means what it says. And I want to know if you're a church that teaches the Bible as it's written, and do you teach what the Bible says? And so at that point, I know the next probably six minutes are going to be pretty fun. And I just feel almost a little bit guilty looking forward to it. (laughs) But I know our conversation and our relationship probably isn't going to be long lived. And we're talking about something incredibly sacred. And so I want to make the most of our chat together. And so I say, ah, so you take the Bible literally. And usually what comes forth is, you bet I do. And I hope you do too. Ah, that's good to take the Bible literally. So that's what you do. You, you, you read what it says, and that's what it means. And there's no other discussion beyond that. You don't pick and choose verses? Nope, we don't pick and choose verses. That's great, because the Bible is God's sacred word. You shouldn't pick and choose verses. And so when you read it, you just take it at face value, and that's what it means, and that's what it says. They said, absolutely. Is that how you teach? And that how you preach? And I say, well, then I, I would imagine that you have come to the conclusion that when you read Scripture and you get to Isaiah's prophecy of the 55th chapter, talking about the Messiah coming and the kingdom of God coming, that you have come to the conclusion that all of the trees in Isaiah's day had hands. An awkward moment just like that one (laughs) follows that statement. Because he can't decide whether I'm just nuts or to take me serious. And I imagine that you also believe that the mountains and hills have lungs and mouth and they sing the way our worship leader sings. And he says, or she, of course I don't believe that. That's ridiculous. You know that's what that means. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that trees have literal hands. Have you ever been up on the hill of a Colorado forest with tall trees, when the wind comes through at a frightening speed and it sounds like, if you close your eyes, it sounds like applause. Have you been there? There's nothing like it. To be in God's cathedral, when his presence is felt by a rushing wind, it's absolutely amazing and i know the trick i've played in our conversation is unfair and i know the conversation is important to this person and they desperately want to find some place where they can worship i know that and i do not begin to take any of that lightly but i did just have a bit of fun with somebody and they say that's not what god meant and i say you're right And that's low-hanging fruit, isn't it? This is an easy one. It's true. The prophet Isaiah used a picture that you and I can identify with and we imagine the applause that takes place when wind rushes through trees. And that's a ridiculous example. So let's talk about one that matters. There's a family in our church that at the beginning of COVID experienced an unimaginable loss. Tom and Lori Miller attend our church and they start watching during COVID. And then as soon as we open back up in person, they were in the doors and they've been around all year long. In March before lockdowns happened last year, their 28 year old daughter committed suicide in Texas. And the loss that they experienced, similar to yours during COVID, same thing. We lost all the same things. We lost all manner of things. But their loss was so deep and painful and acute because, well, can you imagine a more significant loss for a parent? Ashley's funeral was yesterday. More than a year past her death people gathered. and It it really is a unique time for people who are having to grieve, especially grieving in community. Um, That's not the first funeral that I've I've done this year where uh, someone passed months before the gathering could happen. And we have this impression in our culture, especially Western culture, that grief can be microwaved and hurried along and this picture that I've experienced with families when they have experienced a loss and then six months, eight months, or in this case, more than 16 months after the death, they have the funeral. I've been able to see the grief process in a much different perspective. And I think it's, in fact, much healthier than trying to shove together a funeral that would happen four days after someone passes. And so to hear their stories... Tom and Lori share in front of a few hundred people up at Olinger Chapel Hill Cemetery. It was a beautiful picture, but they were able, able to reflect on the last year and talk about the pain and the grief that they felt and how distant and even abandoned by God they felt, how it affected their faith. Her faith intact, but pretty beaten up. So while Jesus was on the cross, Matthew records these words. At about three o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma, sabachthani, which means, in fact, say this with me. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? This is what Jesus says. And so while no rational person would believe that trees have hands, if you decide that the Bible must only be taken literally, and I don't even really know what that means, except it means that you must see the Bible how I see the Bible with a certain verse, then you come to this verse, and this isn't just Scripture. I mean, if you have a red-letter Bible, this is in red. I mean, this is the Bible Bible. This is the heart of the Bible. This is, this is important. And if you believe it should be taken literally, then you come to the conclusion that at some point in the life of Jesus, what some would say the loneliest, darkest point, that God turned his back on Jesus. Now, I was taught that growing up, that Jesus took on our sin, and because Jesus became sin, that God couldn't be anywhere near it. That's what I was taught. Maybe you were taught the same thing. The reason I was taught that is because somebody who takes the Bible literally came to this verse and decided, well, we're going to take that literally too, because otherwise we're picking and choosing verses, and that'll lead us nowhere good. And so this must mean exactly what it says. So God must have abandoned Jesus. And so when God abandons Jesus that way, I came to the conclusion that God certainly must treat me the same way when I sin. In fact, I created an entire theology the same way many theologians had around sin and atonement and God's love and mercy that centered around that idea. Which meant that I did not read the whole of Scripture that God says over and over in the Old and New Testament, I will never, what? Leave you or, do you know the rest? Or forsake you. How could that be true? If God abandoned Jesus, I even read in the Psalms that David says, "I can't escape you. I go up to the highest mountain and you are there. I go down to the depths of Sheol, or the place of the dead, what we call hell. And what does he say about God? You are, you are there. I cannot escape your presence. You and I both know that God is everywhere." And so could it be that when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? That the circumstances of our life can be so painful sometimes and so difficult and so unbearable that even though God is right beside us that we feel alone. Could that be? Could it be that God's love is so full and so complete that even God's son, could express this and still be loved by God. Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Of course you have. If you've drawn breath for more than a few years, you felt abandoned by God. But could it could also be capital T true that God does not abandon you, nor will he leave you, nor will he forsake you, that he is everywhere? Yes, that is absolutely true. And so when the man says, does your church teach the Bible? What he's doing in earnestness and in sincerity, he's bringing to the table a relationship with Scripture that has something that's a part of it. It is a paradigm it's a, a lens that he views scripture with. And so the question that you need to wrestle with is this one. What's your relationship with scripture like? It's not a good answer, bad answer. It just is, is an answer. And how do you want to interact with this book? What do you believe the story is about? It's probably shaped by somebody with good intentions that had a view of God that has got all kinds of things mixed up in it, good stuff, bad stuff, right stuff, wrong stuff, and you have the same thing. And our hope and our goal and our desire is to keep what's helpful, keep what's true, keep what's good. How do you know the Holy Spirit helps you discern? Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will lead you into all truth, and so this is absolutely what we count on God, Spirit to do in us and through us is to lead us to a place where we trust him completely and we're fully surrendered by him. Now, back to the verse though, okay? This is important. This verse is about scripture and many would contend only about the Old Testament because that's what was written at the time. But, of course, most people teach it using all of Scripture. And it would be true that all of Scripture is useful, and so we apply it to that, rightly or wrongly. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So my question to you is this. Does that sound like good news to you? Uh Oh, maybe this will help. Let's say I invite you to lunch. My friend George, right here on the front row, close, second row. George, let's go to lunch this week. I'll buy. You can eat whatever you want, all of it. doesn't matter. We're going to eat good food. We're going to enjoy it. But let me tell you why we're gathering, why we're going to lunch. Because here, I have some things to chat with you about. And what I really need to do is teach you, rebuke you, and correct you. Looking forward to lunch now? Pastor, you're going to whip out the Bible, the floppy one. Hit me with it. I'm going to teach you and correct you and rebuke you. And this is how we find ourselves wounded by scripture. If you grew up with the idea that scripture is a, uh, a grand to-do list or a set of rules or maybe a way for you to earn God's favor or live your life properly and correctly, I'm not saying it's none of those things, but if that was your predominant view of scripture, then this verse is your sweet spot. You love it. It's the bullseye on the target. If you are a black and white, right and wrong rule follower, then you think, absolutely. When I read scripture, this is what I see. And for those of you who have found yourself on a moral improvement program that fails time and time again, then you have discovered that this is not good news. And it's not. It's not the gospel. That doesn't mean that scripture isn't useful for these things. It is. But most of the time when we see this verse, well, you see there's a comma, and of course it's all one sentence in the Greek anyway people have lopped off the next piece of the verse, which says this. The next verse, actually, is what it is, verse 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, what makes that so unique and why you really need to zero in on this just for a moment is unlike many of Paul's letters who were written. Most of Paul's letters were written to groups of people, the Romans who lived in this particular area of Europe. Uh, Galatians, same thing. Or maybe he's writing to the church at Ephesus. But this letter was written to a man named what? This is easy. It's a freebie, Timothy, right? He's a young pastor, and he's working at a church, and he is helping pastor and lead and serve these people and Paul writes to Timothy as a young pastor, and he gives us this part of the verse which is discouraging to a lot of pastors because most pastors read this first part and go like, oh, yeah, it is. Scripture is this. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting. I'm going to whip my church right into shape. We're going to be the best church you ever saw. We're going to be so taught and rebuked and corrected that... <laughs> but then Paul says, Timothy... You're going to pastor and shepherd a group of people. This verse that I'm giving you, this this advice, this this direction that I'm giving you, you are not to use Scripture, any of it, as a weapon to teach and correct other people. You are, before you end up in relationship and guiding and leading these people, you are to use all of Scripture to teach and rebuke and correct you, Timothy. You. You. It's your heart that we're working on. You don't speak from a place of authority. You don't decide that you're in charge of people's lives and what they even believe. Who leads us into all truth? The Holy Spirit. Who convicts us of sin? Not the loud mouthed pastor. The Holy Spirit leads us into correction. He guides us into all truth. You have the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is saying. This is what it means to live it out. So, so what is scripture for? A, a list of rules or to-do list? No, no. Timothy, look, when you engage with scripture, know that you are being led into a relationship with God where you understand who he is, how he loves you, and how he's leading you forward. Listen close. This is a story. It's about story all through it from the beginning to the end. It's a story. And this story is about God's love for you, about how he made you for a relationship with him and how he, even in the midst of sin and brokenness and estrangement, is drawing you back in to walk with him every day. That's what the Bible is about. Scripture tells us the story of a God who loves us unconditionally utterly and completely and he is reconciling all things including you and me to himself that's what scripture says about who god is his character and what he's up to so how do we use scripture then well that's what this whole series has been about and what we've hoped the last the very first verse that we'll come back to on this last week we gave this to you at the very beginning of the summer and we said, one verse, you ought to look at this. we should look at the first sentence of this verse. Say it with me, you ready? Live in harmony with one another. Could be that at the beginning of summer, you thought, I'm gonna give that a try. That sounds like a good idea. I'm gonna give that a whirl. I'm gonna live in harmony with one another. And if you left church that day, or maybe later in the week when you listened online, you decided this is gonna be something I'm gonna attempt because I need a little more harmony, I need a little more peace in my life. Then you went about five minutes, five steps before you realized, well, that's impossible. <laughs> and wh- why? why? Why did that happen to you? Because you're horrible? Because you fail all the time? Because God can't do a darn thing with you? No, 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 no. It, it happened because this was on your mind. And so when you push To live with harmony with the people around you, your differences show up. Your different opinions show up. Their idiosyncrasies that drive you crazy show up. And you feel impatient. And it's in that moment that you realize that what God has called me to, to live in harmony with other people, is the very thing that drives me to surrender and seek union with God. The center of the bullseye, it's not a moral deal. It's not sinless. It's not anything that you think it is other than union with God, relationship with him. It's the very thing that will bring about the peace or the desire to live in harmony. How does it do that? Well, Jesus said, I give you a new command that you would love each other. How? As I have loved you. How does God love you unconditionally? Lord, I went home that day and I was seeking harmony. And what I did was get my own way with my wife. We had an argument, and I bullied her into thinking like I think. Lord, forgive me. I want to live in harmony with the people. It happened at work. It happened with coworkers. Harmony was not found. I found out how selfish or prideful or insecure I am. And in the middle of that, Lord, I come to you and I surrender. Only you can change me from the inside out, and I will live and seek to be in harmony with other people, which means I have to give up my way which means I can't always be right. Half the time I'm wrong anyway, even when I think I'm right. And so I seek this and I live it out. What just happened? Well, Scripture rebuked and corrected me and I received it. Not at your hand, at the Holy Spirit's hand. Because I allowed Scripture to be used in my life in this very unique way. That's what we're seeking. What's your relationship with Scripture like? Would you allow the power of these words to begin to shape you so that you and I love more like Jesus? Let me guide you through a prayer. So, Lord, we come this morning knowing and believing that your love for us is complete, it is unconditional and it's all that we need. Lord, we find ourselves falling short. Sometimes we even feel abandoned by you. Sometimes we're not sure how to even take the words of Scripture. So many of us, Lord, have opened up your word and found ourselves confused and lost, and so we set it aside. Lord, our hope as we behold your greatness and your glory is to know and believe that you are reconciling all things to yourself. That includes me and my difficult neighbor. includes my wayward son or daughter. It includes my boss that I don't even know what to do with. It includes the toughest relationships I have And it includes the goodness that I experience when I find myself out in nature and beholding your majesty. So, Lord, as we ponder this week our relationship with Scripture and how you shape us and what you do in and through us, we surrender more fully to you and we ask that you would allow our hearts to be soft, moldable, just like clay and you would help us to live out this new commandment that Jesus gave, that we would love. Love the way you love us unconditionally. When we fall short, we fall on your mercy. Help us to get up, dust ourselves off, and love again. So now, Lord, we declare your majesty, and we pray that we would step into that sphere, knowing that you are with us and that you will never leave us. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus.